the entire passage this morning. I'm just going to read the key verse, the key thought from this text. So turn to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Last Sunday, we examined Paul's ministry of unusual miracles in the city of Ephesus, how the enemy was right on his heels when God is at work. The enemy is not far behind. God was doing some mighty things in the city of Ephesus. He taught there for three years, the longest stay that Paul had in any city that he'd gone to, any church that he'd planted. And now that time has come to a close. Paul left Ephesus. He went into Achaia, visited those churches that he'd planted. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. And this is the last time that he's going to speak with the pastors, the overseers, the elders of that congregation. And he wants to leave one final address with them. And you know, when you say your final words to somebody, you better make it important. Something that the Lord's going to use to impact. And Paul certainly does this in Acts chapter 18. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 20. And I want to just look at what I think are perhaps the key thought of this passage. And then you may sit down and we'll pray and then we'll walk through this passage together. So turn to verse 22 through 24. Paul says, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, the purpose, so that I may finish my race or my course with joy and the ministry. His course, his race, is the same thing as his ministry. This ministry, he describes it as which I received from the Lord. And then he gives an apposition to re-describe that again, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. What a way to live your life. I do not count my life dear unto myself so that I can finish my race with joy. Let's pray together. Father, I think every believer's heart is to live a life of purpose. God, I confess this morning that many of us are like the Apostle Paul, if not all of us like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. The things that I want to do, I don't. The things that I wish I didn't do, those I practice. Lord, we are so thankful for his conclusion at the end of that chapter. Now, thanks be unto God. That with my mind, I serve the law of Christ. And we know that there is 
in our members a war at work, and our flesh does not want to submit to that. And so the wonderful chapter of 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit. For the Spirit has made us free from the law of death. Father, I pray this morning as a church body that God, that this church would live with vision and with purpose. God, that we could say at the end of every day, Lord, today I lived with purpose. I lived with meaning. So, Father, I ask that you would bless our time in your word. Father, help us to glean principles out of this passage so that we can live a life that has eternal consequences, has eternal impact. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. I want to read through the passage, the entire passage that we're going to preach from, and just kind of do a quick Bible study with you. So Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He's at a place called Miletus. He has called for the elders of the church to meet him because he's on his way to fulfill a ministry of taking offering back to Jerusalem. And he also wants to be there to finish a vow that he has. And he wants to be there at the feast. He wants his ministry in Jerusalem to be accepted by the Gentiles, his, by the Jews, this ministry from the Gentiles to give this back to the Jerusalem church. And so he's, he's bound in his spirit to get back to Jerusalem. He feels this sense of urgency, but at the same time, he wants to make sure everything is complete. Everything is wrapped up. He doesn't want any loose ends. He wants to make sure that those three years in Ephesus will count for eternity. So there's an eternal principle that I think all of us can get from this passage. Every one of us want to make our lives count for eternity. And I'll give you a simple way to do that. And then I'll give us three points that will help us accomplish that. The best way to make your life count for eternity, it's not very profound, it's very simple. Pour your life into others. You want to make your life count for eternity, you invest in people. This is what Jesus did. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus infested his life in people. He took 12 ordinary men and he poured his life into them because he knew that his ministry would only last as long as those 12 men carried it out. When they crucified him, he knew that it was finished. And for his ministry to continue on after him, he had to pour his life into 12 guys. 
And specifically, he took three men, Peter, James, and John, and he says, I'm going to spend extra time with you men, and I am going to invest in your life. I'm going to pour myself into you so that you can invest and pour your lives into others. And we see Paul doing this with this this group of Ephesian elders. You can't invest yourself too thinly. You have to invest yourself in people who know who you know are going to make a difference. And this is what Paul is doing. From Miletus, chapter 20, verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I came to Asia. Now I'm reading from the New King James and it says in what manner, but it's really the word how. You know how I lived. And what he says here, he says, how I lived always among you. From the first day, and we're going to come back and revisit this. From the first day, and I lived always with you. Now, how did he do that? He served the Lord with all humility, with many tears, and with trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Now, here's our second how. Verse 20, how I kept nothing back that was helpful. Sum Pharaoh, that was going to move you along in progress. I didn't hold anything back that was going to advance you. Anything that was going to keep you from moving forward, I did not hold back from that. But I proclaim to you, and I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, Two sides of the same coin, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll go back and look at that. Here's the first and C. We're going to see three of these. So we're going to do a little bit of Bible study here and then we're going to flesh it out. And C now. We're going to look at those phrases. If you've got a New American Standard, it just says and now. And now. And we're going to see that three times. So this is, he's moving to something new now. He's picking up a new topic. And see now, I go to Jerusalem, bound in the Spirit. You can see how he's talking about a new concept that he's bringing into him. He says, from the first day, I was always with you, serving with humility, tears, such and such. And now, I'm shifting gears a little bit, Paul says. Now I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I am bound in the Spirit. Knowing... Very little, except chains await me. Every city I find this, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord to testify about the grace of God. Here's our second one. And indeed now. If you've got an NASB, it's and now. He's changing another topic right here for us. And now I know that among you who have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. What is Paul doing? He is telling them, these are my final words to you. I want to have a lasting impact. This is my last chance. I'm not going to see your face. And now I will see your face no more. 
among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God will see your face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. What is he saying there? He's saying, I have got no regrets. I have poured out everything into your life. Therefore, I can put my head on the pillow at night and sleep with a clear conscience. What a, hallelujah is right. What a way to live your life, to know that you are answerable to God, and God, to the best of my knowledge, I have given them everything they knew. I told them about repentance. I taught them about faith in Jesus Christ. I have given them, I didn't hold anything back that they needed. I labored among them from the day I started there. Always lived that way among them. I served with them with tears. And now you know what I can say? I have done my best, and I am innocent from the blood of all men. What a way to conclude. Why? And he repeats this again. This is the second time he says this, same phrase, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You know you've done it all when you've given everything about God's word. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the whole flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. I'm going to just stop for a second because we had a question a couple of weeks ago, was what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? Well, right here's the difference. An elder is an overseer. He shepherds the flock of God. He feeds them with the word of God. A deacon is a servant that ministers to the physical needs of the body. That's basically the difference in a nutshell, okay? Now, why is he warning them? Verse 29, for I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among your own selves will men rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn every one of you night and day with tears. He served them with tears. He warned them with tears. Here's a man who's pouring his life into others, isn't it? He wants to make sure his life counts. This is the last and now, verse 32. So now what do I do? It's like Paul saying, I've got to wrap this up. And he says, no, there's one more thing I've got to say. Sounds like a pastor, doesn't it? <laughs> and so now, brethren, here's the final thing that I want to do. I commend you to God. I'm not going to see you ever again. So what can I do? What's the most that I can do for somebody? I can commend them to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Man, that's what we want to do in people's lives. We want to pour ourselves into their lives. That's a life that makes an impact. <clears throat> And then Paul ends it by saying this, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Praise God for those kind of preachers. Yes, you yourselves know that my hands have provided for my own necessities and those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. How do I ensure that I've done all that I can to prepare people that follow after me? Being a disciple, being a mentor. How do I prepare successive generations? How do I leave a lasting legacy for the kingdom of heaven? Those are the questions that we want to answer today. How do I do that? How do I leave a legacy? How do I live my life that will count for eternity? 
And I've already sort of summed that up as by pouring your lives into others. But practically, how do I do that? How do I pour my life into other people? Well, we build with the proper material. We don't use wood, hay, and stubble. We use gold, silver, precious stones, and we build on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. There's three principles that I want to give you this morning. You may have them in your bulletin. I don't know. Um, I didn't check it, but I'm sure Soren put it there. First principle, be all in. Have you ever done something and you know your heart wasn't really in it? And you know you're just doing it half-heartedly because you really don't feel like this is something you're called to do. And it really doesn't look that good and you really don't do justice to it because you are not all in. The first principle is simple. Be all in. Live your life without regrets. Say, I put my hand to the plow. I grabbed a hold of this thing and I am all in. You want to serve North Valley Bible Church and you want it to be meaningful and fulfilling? Simple. Be all in. We've got a lot of chairs and don't be just occupying space. And I can say amen to this church body that the people who regularly attend here, whether you're a member or whether you're a regular visitor here, I have witnessed it with my eyes and with reality that you are all in. Whenever we have a dinner, people are here putting up tables. People are bringing tablecloths. People are staying after, vacuuming floors, picking up. When we have a harvest party, people are here setting things up. And I see that in people who are regular tenders here who just come, you are all in. Let me tell you a little story about myself. I, I, um, I hate using personal illustrations, but I don't know anybody better than myself, so sorry. <laughs> when I went to Louisiana Tech, I was um, excited about running at this college, this university. And my first year, I was all in. I broke two school records as a freshman at university, and that doesn't happen very much. But by the end of the year, my joy at that school began to wane. And at the end of that year, I started to look to transfer. I started calling other coaches. And wind of it got back to the head coach, and he called me in the office, and man, did he rake me over the coals. And it kind of left a bitter taste in my mouth because I didn't like the way he was coaching. And and one thing led to another. My next year, again, great start. And then it was injury after injury after injury. My fourth and final year had an injury on a tendon on the side of my foot that was not going to heal. The coach wanted to just race me in every race he could just to get points. And I went into his office and said, I can't run anymore. I can't even walk. I had to schedule a surgery. I was in surgery and I came out and I was going to be in a cast for the rest of that year. My coach was going to write me off. He says, you know what? You've got a full scholarship and I want to get rid of you, Pat. That was it. He got fired and a new coach came in. 
It was my fifth year. Got to make up that last year because of that surgery. I was so excited. I wanted to be all in. I set a new school record in the indoor mile. Two weeks later, I was bit by a brown recluse spider, and I found myself in the hospital and had part of my toe removed. I'd already had all my credits to graduate. I went to every professor and had them sign off. I called my parents. They were living 1,500 miles away from Louisiana. They drove all the way across the country. They packed up my car. We still had indoor track left. We still had outdoor track left. And I said, I'm done. My parents drove 1,500 miles. We're driving out of Louisiana Tech parking lot. I looked at my dad and I said, stop. I said, let's unload the car. I said, Dad, I can't leave. He said, why not? I said, Dad, I will always regret it. I've been here five years, Dad. I signed that scholarship and I haven't done anything that I thought I could have done. I want to be all in until it's over. My poor dad. He unloaded that car, drove 1,500 miles back home, came back two months later, 1,500 miles, to watch me graduate. The end of the story is I didn't run too well the rest of the year. Had to go to a swimming pool because I couldn't run. But God used that to spur me on to keep on going. And you know what? I look back at Louisiana Tech and I've got no regrets. I was no fanfare. I didn't make the NCAAs. Never was an All-American. Never did any of those things. But you know what? I've got no regrets. And Paul says, from the very first day that I came into Asia, you know how I was working among you. You know what that tells me? Paul was consistent and he was committed. When you are all in, you will be consistent. You will be committed. You'll be here when the doors open. You'll be here when Sunday school or whatever it is that you're committed to. If it's working with the children or if it's your spouse and you want that relationship to, to flourish, you will be committed to it and you will be consistent with it. Second principle, you don't hold anything back. Paul said, I didn't hold anything back, 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21. He says, I kept nothing back that was helpful. I proclaimed it to you and I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There were some things that you needed to hear, some hard truth. You needed to hear about repentance. You needed to hear about faith in God. He didn't open, open anything back. He didn't hold anything back. So if I want to be all in, I am committed and I'm consistent. Secondly, I don't hold anything back. In other words, I am candor. I have candor with people. I know that truth is the only thing that will help them. The only thing that will profit them is truth. I am thorough with them when explaining the gospel. I am thorough with them when I teach them the word of God testifying to them. The Amplified Translation says that Paul consistently and emphatically and earnestly spoke with them. The New American Standard says he solemnly warned them. His aim was not 
to be popular. His aim was to be profitable. The subject of the great mission had two sides of it, and Paul was going to give them both. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just stop and talk about this because I think there's a lot of confusion today about what repentance means. Repentance does not mean that I'm going to pledge my entire life to the Lordship of Jesus because not a one of us in this room could ever hope to even live up to that. The word repentance means to have a change of mind. It's meta change, noia, a new way of thinking, a new way of thinking toward God. God says, I'm a sinner. I need to repent and I need to see myself as a sinner. I need to acknowledge that I cannot save myself. I need to have repentance. I have this idea that somehow my good works are going to be sufficient and that somehow my good works will outweigh my bad works. I need to repent of that. I have nothing that is good. All of my righteousness is filthy rags. Repentance towards God means that I need to acknowledge that I cannot save myself. Repentance toward God means I need to view myself as God sees me. God sees me as a sinner. They turn from idols to serve the true and living God. If I have a false understanding of God, then I need to repent of that and I need to see God who He is. God is holy and God will judge sin. And I need to repent toward God and say, yes, God, you are holy, I am unholy. God, I cannot save myself, only you can save me. And then the natural turning is, well, what do I do then? When I acknowledge that I cannot save myself and that my works are worthy, unworthy of salvation, then I place myself in the complete worthiness of Jesus. I think this is what Paul is saying here. In fact, the prepositional phrase toward God means I need to repent with respects to who God is. That's the idea of that preposition. We must have a change of mind with regard to sin. Sin is serious with God. Sin is an offense against a holy God, and sin must be judged. That's what I need to repent of. It doesn't mean that I'm going to pledge my life to God and I'm going to give God all these things that I have no control over and I have no idea what that, even that means as a lost person. That's putting the cart in front of the horse. I need to see myself as a sinner. That's what he's saying. Repentance is not a promise that I will serve God the rest of my life with a humble heart. It's simply confessing that I need a Savior. This is what sinners must, be do, must do in order to be saved. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and says, yes, I am a sinner. Faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. What is faith? Faith is trusting in the merits of Christ alone. I am trusting in his complete and finished work on the cross. I have nothing, and I am putting absolutely no confidence in anything I do. My confidence is in Jesus. You know, you can have assurance of salvation, not because of your performance. If your assurance of salvation is based on your performance, you will question your salvation nearly every day. The great theologian who started Dallas Seminary was asked, what will you say when you stand before God and he asks you to come into heaven? Francis Schaeffer Francis Schaeffer said, because of Jesus, full stop. Why will I get to heaven? Because of Jesus. 
I have all of his righteousness imputed to me by faith. I've acknowledged that, yes, I'm a sinner. I've acknowledged I can't save myself. And Paul said, I am free from the blood of all men because I did not shun to declare to you that you need a Savior and you're a sinner and you need Jesus. That is good news, isn't it? So he held nothing back. How do I live a life that has eternal consequences. I pour my life into people by being all in. All in means I'm consistent. All in means I don't hold anything back. Thirdly, all in means that I have a selfless agenda. I have a selfless agenda. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. We need to have a sense of duty and an obligation irregardless of personal cost. To be all in, I'm consistent. To be all in, I don't hold anything back. To be all in, I have a selfless agenda, irregardless to personal cost. Not knowing the things that are going to happen to me, he says. I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. I am all in, and what happens to me is not the point. Responsibility over personal comfort. That's what Paul is saying. I put my responsibility over my personal comforts. When we do that, ministry becomes a joy because it's not about us, it's about Jesus. Let's look at those verses. I go bound to Jerusalem in the Spirit, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, chains, tribulations await me. None of these things move me. I count my life not dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy, a sense of responsibility, to bear witness of the gospel about the grace of God. Paul had an incense, a a deep sense of obligation. That's why he was all in. This is what he said over in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He said, I am a debtor. I'm a debtor to all men, to wise and to unwise, to Greeks and to Jews. And then he says, as a result of that, so as much as within me is, I am ready to preach the gospel in Rome also. A selfless agenda Now, what's the result when you are all in and you've been consistently and totally committed to something and you're not holding anything back and your agenda is to live your life for others and you don't count your own life dear to yourself? The result of that is verses 25 through 27. Verses 25 through 27, you live with no regrets. I'm innocent from the blood of all men. You live with a clear conscience. The realization that our time is limited. Look at what Paul says. He says, I indeed now, I know that among you I will go preaching the... Let me start over. And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, I will see your face no more. There was a realization that it's going to come to an end. I was talking with a sister in Christ 
yesterday, and her sister has got a serious diagnosis, and as we were talking, she said, you know, it makes me realize that there are things that I need to prioritize, and that is pouring my life into what's eternal and what's going to last. Paul said, I know there's coming a day when I'm not going to see your face any longer. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a mentor, a school teacher, whatever it is, there's a time where they're no longer going to be under your influence. You've got to realize that my time is very, very limited. I'll never forget an illustration that was given by a missionary. I don't even remember the message, but I'll never forget his illustration. He was preaching out of the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 89. And it says, our lives are three score and ten. If by reason of strength, four score. In other words, our average lifespan is 70 years. I'll be 61 this year. It's countdown time, Patrick. You got nine left. <laughs> I hope I get the four score. I hope Ron gets four score and ten. <laughs> Ron's saying Amen. Maybe you'll remember this illustration, but he said, imagine a jar of marbles. And every single day, you take another marble out. And one day you look up and the bottom of that jar can be seen. The rest of that psalm says, teach me to number my days that I may apply my heart to wisdom. I don't want to look back and say, you know what? I could have done a lot more. I want to look back and say, my hands are innocent. Pure is what Paul is saying here in verse 25 through 27. I'm not going to see your face anymore. There's a realization that time is innocent. I want and you need to have that same feeling, that same confidence that we have a clean conscience. I am pure. Katharazo, the Greek word, means that I am innocent and I, am having, I have a clean conscience before God. I did not shrink back. Have real closure. This is a wonderful principle from this little verse right here. I have sh not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. For Look at the word for. Why? It's, it's, it's an explanatory for. I almost said the Greek word, gar. <laughs> you don't, gar is a fish in English, right? <laughs> in, in Greek, it's the word for. It's an explanatory for. I am innocent of the blood of all men for. Why? I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. When you give people everything they need to hear and you've not shrunk back, you can end with real closure. Now, this is a practical application for a lot of things. My wife is very, very good at this. I am not. I'll look back at a conversation and Tracy and I'll be driving down the road and I'll look at my wife and I'll say, I should have said this. I should have confronted that. And I let them say that which wasn't really right. And she'll look at me and just shake her head. You had the opportunity. Why didn't you speak up? You're going to have to write them an email. You're going to have to write them a text. You're going to have to call them on the phone. You know how hard that is? After you already talked to them and you blew it and you just sort of nodded your head and you sat there? <laughs> 
Brother Andy's back there laughing. Hopefully, maybe you've got the same experience. <laughs> you want to have closure on something? Don't shrink back because then you've got no regrets. We got 10 minutes to finish two points, okay? The second point have a plan when you leave. Have a plan when you leave. You know, when you, when you finish something, have a plan for where it's going to go. And Paul does this in this next little section. He has a plan where, where he wants these, these men to go. And he does it with two things. He gives them a warning and he gives them a commending. A negative and a positive. These are the things you need to look out for. And these are the things that you need to chase after. Give people a plan. The first, the warning, take heed. Why does he tell them to take heed? I, I, we need to warn people that none of us are exempt from spiritual landmines. Every one of us, we are just one step away from some kind of explosion that's going to disrupt our Christian life. And Paul says to them, take heed. And the first thing he says is take heed to yourselves. Spiritual principle here. This is the spiritual principle that I want, to, want you to get. Never underestimate your own vulnerability. Don't underestimate your own spiritual vulnerability. Temptation is so sly. Temptation happens so quick. I don't think King David got up that morning and said, you know what? Today I'm going to commit adultery. David had a heart for God. Paul is saying to us today, take heed to yourselves because we are very, very vulnerable. We are men of clay. We are people of the flesh. And we can gossip. We can lose our temper. We can lose our testimony that quick. And Paul says the first thing that we need to do is to take heed to ourselves don't underestimate your own vulnerability. Second, we need to ponder our responsibilities. What responsibilities do we have? And look at the way Paul sums up these responsibilities. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. If God has given you a spiritual gift, you are accountable and responsible to him. If God has given you a spiritual ministry, if God has given you children, if God has given you a spouse, the Holy Spirit has entrusted with you those things, and you're going to have to give an account to Him. Secondly, ponder your own responsibility. Thirdly, don't be naive, but be proactive. Don't be naive, but be proactive. Now, where do I get that? Let's keep reading. Paul says, for I know this, that after my departure, Paul didn't wait. He says, you be on your guard now. It doesn't take much to disrupt you. We need to be proactive in warning people. If I'm going to pour my life into other people, I need to warn them about possible pitfalls, possible theological movements that are unbiblical. We need to be doing that, don't we? And this is what Paul is saying. Don't be naive, but be proactive. Oh, well, they'll get it. Well, I don't need to talk to that young person about such and such. 
And when you do that, that's the first area that they're probably going to fall into. Don't take for granted that they're going to get it. Give it to them. Explain it to them, whatever it might be. Don't be naive. Be proactive. And Paul is saying, I know that when I leave, this is going to happen. You can guarantee it. If you're discipling somebody, somebody's going to come by and try to undo what you're doing. Now, what is the positive? The positive is you commend people to God and to the word of his grace. I'm glad Paul didn't give us a list of legalism here, did he? He didn't say, when they come to church, they need to have this on. When they use a translation, it's got to be this translation. When they play music, it's got to be this kind of music. He made it simple. Two things. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Rules don't change anybody. God's mercy, God's love changed people, and the power of God's word changed people. So if you're going to commend people, don't commend them to rules. Don't commend them to some kind of regiment. Commend them to God. God cares about people. God loves people. God is the one who keeps them. And God's word is able. Look at the word, what he says here. God's word is able. The total sufficiency of scripture. Now, I want to just warn you about a contemporary movement that's happening in America. I mean, it's sweeping in America. And they don't come out and say this, but they're undermining the total sufficiency of the word of God by this movement. This movement is saying that God's word needs some kind of irresistible, compelling call in order to change people. And if that person is moving in sin, it's because God hasn't irresistibly called them and changed them. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the word of God is able to change hearts. This book is powerful. It's living in Africa. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Paul told Timothy this. In 1 Timothy 3.14, he says, From a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. And then what does he say about those Scriptures? He says, you didn't need some kind of irresistible call to make you believe those Scriptures. He says, no, you knew them from a child, and the Scriptures are able to make you wise. This book is able to make you wise into salvation. The Bible is able. The Bible is completely sufficient. It is able to give you an inheritance... And it's able to build you up. This is what you need. I love what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, how does it start? Huh. 1 Peter, help me somebody. <laughs> Therefore, lay aside all malice and all guile, envy, hypocrisy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word, why? In order that you may grow thereby. Commend people to this book. It will change their life. Okay, Paul's prepared them. One last thing to share with you today. If I'm going to pour my life, I've got to be all in. I've got to have a plan how to wrap it up. But the best tool that you have other than the Bible is your example. And that's what Paul says here. I exemplified servant leadership. Total servanthood here. Point number three. I have shown you in every way. I want to just bring your attention to those words. 
verse 35, I have shown you in every way, and look at this little participle, by. How did he do that? By laboring like this. My life was an example of servanthood. Don't have any expectations of payback. That hits every one of us, doesn't it? We always, we're flesh, aren't we? You can't get away from it. I mean, that's why we have to have the total righteousness of Jesus put into us. Because even when we're doing good deeds, they're not good. Because we somehow think in the back of our mind, they owe me something for this. Don't play, pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. We all do that. Or we feel slighted when we don't get complimented. Or we feel slighted when we don't get thanked for it. Why? Because we were sort of doing it for God, but we were also doing a little bit for ourselves. And Paul said, I expected nothing. I coveted no man's silver, no man's gold, and no man's apparel. Paul said in one of his letters, I can't remember which one it is, but he said, I didn't seek yours. I sought you. So when I live a life of servanthood, I don't have any expectation of payback. Secondly, I make it my aim to serve and not to be served. He says, my hands have labored, providing for myself and those who are with me. And real blessings, where do they really come from? They come through giving. Now, this is never quoted in the Gospels. I think this is sort of a general statement, or maybe Jesus may have said this and it wasn't actually recorded in one of the Gospels. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I think it's sort of a paraphrase of the life of Christ. This is the life that Jesus said when he said, I've come not to serve, to be served, to give my life a ransom. Or when he said, give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together. This was Jesus' motto of life. As Jesus lived it, as Jesus said it, it's such a blessing to give rather than to receive. Don't have any regrets. Now, this morning, if you're like me, you look back and you say, you know what, Patrick, I've already blown it. I've got some regrets. There were some things that I didn't do very well. It's too late. Use those as motivation. Use those as stepping stones to say, you know what, I learned some lessons there. And I'm going to do it like this the next time. Don't have any regrets. Three things. Be all in. What does that look like? Commitment and consistency. Not holding anything back. And a selfless agenda. Have a plan for the future. What does that look like? I warn and I commend. A selfless example. No expectations. My aim is to serve Christ. The real blessings are through giving. Be an example of servanthood. So if you want to live a life that really is productive, that counts, find somebody, find a ministry, and begin pouring yourself into that. Let's close with prayer. Father, 
I want to thank you for the simplicity of Scripture and also the power of Scripture, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul. I thank you, Lord, that Luke recorded the key elements, everything that the Holy Spirit wanted for the church to have, Luke recorded for us. Thank you, God, for the promises in Peter that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we want North Valley Bible Church to be a church that will make a difference for all eternity. God, we're not guaranteed that this church is always going to be here. But God, we are promised that every soul that comes into the kingdom of heaven is a jewel forever. And so God, make it our aim as a church to be pouring our lives into one another and to reaching out into the field of the harvest to bring people into your kingdom. Father, help us to be all in. Help us today to say, I'm going to put my hands to the plow. Help us today to come up with a plan. Help us today to model servant leadership. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.